On this episode, we discuss Apple and Google going at each other over security concerns, Google Assistant possibly getting the ability to handle holds, and there's progress with 3D printing a heart. Plus, Chris is going to get his football on as he taps that app, dealing with his addiction. This and more in this week's show. I'm Austin from PopXCast, a pop culture podcast part of the Gunna Geek Network, just like the show you're checking out now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other awesome geeky shows at GunnaGeekNetwork.com. This is the official GunnaGeek.com show. Each week, we run down the latest news and happenings in the world of geek. These are your hosts for the show, Steven, Chris, and SP. Welcome to an all-new episode of the OfficialGunnaGeek.com show. This is episode 301. I am Stephen John Drew, and I'm pleased to say that Chris Farrell is here again this week. This is my 299th episode of the OfficialGunnaGeek.com show. I don't know. I, I'm at like 100, 120, maybe max. I don't know if that's actually true or not. <laughs> but uh, SP is still away on his hiatus. He has returned from his hiatus. He has gone back from his hiatus, from his hiatus, and he's back on hiatus. But we're pleased to say that this week, Suncast is here again this week. Yee, I'm here. Suncast, we're pleased to have you here this week. It's fantastic to have you back over here again. It's been a little while since we've had you on. And uh, you were in the chat last week for our 300th episode. And that meant a lot for me that you were there. Thank you very much for joining us live while we recorded that uh, two weeks ago now, actually, I guess it was. I was going to say last week. Uh, I, <laughs> I was drunk all of last week. That, that week is gone from memory. That's all. That sounds like a good time. You know what happened was when we hit our 300th episode, I said to myself, Stephen, you just haven't reached that notability yet of the GFQ network. So I thought, what would Andrew Zarian did? And I started drinking heavily. That's what I did. <laughs> so you got a cheap bottle of wine and live streamed. Exactly. That's exactly what I Not did. Bad. <laughs> no, Not bad. No, Suncast, we are, we are pleased to have you on here. And for those who might be checking this out for the first time, let me turn it over to you for a minute to plug and promote where the people can usually find you. Because you do a lot of great stuff over there on the GFQ network. So I do a lot of the behind the scenes stuff over at uh, GFQ. We have a bunch of shows over there. We have a wrestling show called Matt Men. Uh, so if you're into wrestling, that's a great podcast for you. We also have uh, tech shows, uh, What the Tech with Paul Throt. That's also a really good one. I think tomorrow, I think we're going to do a live watch along with the Apple event. Ooh. Oh, it's been a while since you've done that over there. Yeah. Yeah. It just happens to fall on the same time as What the Tech. So I think y'all get a lot of snarky com comments from both Andrew and Paul. I would expect Perfect. nothing else. <laughs> Uh, well, yeah, I'm sure that behind the scenes, even if you're not on there, you'll be cursing them out and uh, and aside from cursing them out, making them look good because you're always doing the flippy of the buttons, right? Uh, most of the time. Yeah. Well, I appreciate everything you do over there because without you over there, I'm sure there would be a 300% rise in alcoholism. Yeah, that would be me drinking. Yes, exactly. <laughs> fair <laughs> That's enough. Fair. Fair I enough. drink too. <laughs> well, let's go ahead and move on to the news. Here we go. Whoa. 
We'll go over and kick it over to the head of the gunnageek.com show here. He is the one that has been on here the most. He is the one that keeps us all in check. Chris Farrell is going to kick off the news this week. Go ahead, Chris Farrell. I think we might be tied for appearances now, Stephen, because <laughs> I think I missed another one. So we'll have to go and get the official record keeper of gunnageek.com to come and weigh in on this. I don't know who that is. So if you want that role, send me a tweet to at the Chris Farrell on Twitter and let me know you want to be the official historian of the gunnageek.com show and we'll give you some fancy Twitter flair. I don't know. You can put it in your Twitter bio. I'll make you a title bar. That's what I'll do. There you go. Get a title bar. <laughs> so that's some cool stuff. Let's talk about some other cool stuff. And that is the Google Assistant. It's not a gunnageek.com show unless I find some way to be like, ooh, here's a cool way to use Google Assistant and other, dev- and other tools. So we do know back with Android 9 Pie, Google Assistant rolled out and had the ability to do call screening and you could call for reservations automatically via Google Assistant. And Google kind of showed their hand that their plan is to enrich Google Assistant to basically make it do any and all phone calling that would need to be done so that you don't have to talk to someone unless you decide to. Well, they are potentially adding some new abilities to Google Assistant other than just booking appointments and things like that. A source over at 9to5Google claims that the assistant on the upcoming Pixel 4 will have the option of taking over when you're on hold, bringing you back when a human then answers the phone. You'd only have to tap a button to ignore the hold music, then go about your way getting things done. However, it's not clear if this is going to find a way to skip the canned, your call is very important to us type of messages you get, but we can kind of dream that would be the case so that we're not jolted back anytime an artificial representative is there. More that it's smart enough to pick up that, oh, this is a real person talking to you, ready to help you. And then it brings your phone back on and you go back your very on your very way. So it's coming to Pixel 4 is the rumor. But the rumor is it's not quite ready on Pixel 4 when that's going to launch. What, next month, I think it is? October time frame? They are saying it should appear shortly thereafter. They'll announce it. It'll be something in the pipeline. There's no mention yet as to whether this is going to extend to any other Android phones. Although, do remember those duplex reservations, which was the ability to ask Google Assistant to make reservations, did eventually make their way to non-Pixel devices. So it's probably going to happen that the Pixel phones, those are the test cases for this new tool, and eventually it will roll out to other devices. Like I was saying, if this is true, it offers a peek into Google's phone strategy this year. It's backing off of all these things about, oh, here's cool hardware and ultra-responsive screen kind of things, but hey, here's more things the Android Assistant, the Google Assistant rather, can do to save some time. So are you guys on board with Google trying to find a way to get you out of annoying hold calls? Because I don't know about you. I've been on hold before for like 30 minutes and it's tedious and it's the worst thing ever. And if Google could then be like, oh, you're off hold, time to talk again while I'm doing other things, it would be phenomenal. Agreed. And you know, one of the biggest things about this is the ability to be able to not lose your place in line because you turn down your phone to a level that you completely forget that you are connected and also not having to hear the fact that it's the same can music 30 seconds over and over. Yes. That is some form of like, do, 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 do. And it's like a loop of that for 30 minutes like, or for 30 seconds. Like it's absolutely the worst music ever. And that is really appealing to me right there. And, you know, I have to say, there's a lot of work that needs to happen with the Google Assistant. It finally, finally rolled out to Canada. It uh, looks like fully the whole um, call screening, or at least I got it. And the translation isn't great, but it recognizes voices. And as long as it's 
it's able to recognize, hello, I'm here now, or, you know, hello, thank you for calling ABC call center, whatever. That's all I need. As long as I can decipher that that's there and it's not the same, we appreciate your customer, customer patronage or whatever, right? You know, thank you for holding. We find you valuable. So being able to screen that, I like this idea. I think that that's really cool. And uh, I hope, hope that it is a success. Suncast, would you use this? I would absolutely use this. It's it's what bothers me. I think partly the most about being on hold is the fact that the music just sounds so absolutely garbage. Like I'm 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 not the biggest of audiophile out there, but I definitely think I like my audio quality. And just when you're playing music through a phone, you just don't necessarily have the bandwidth for the music, and it just sounds like absolute garbage. So anytime you're playing music over the phone, it's just not going to sound good. And it's just a very unpleasant thing to listen to from the get go. It's like, okay, well, you're already annoying your customer just by playing music over the phone. My favorite is when they use a track that is clearly trying to be a real track, but is legally distinct. And yeah. and it's terrible, absolutely terrible. Um, or if they have it so messed up that it's distorted or overmodulated so it's just sounds terrible yes. and it's hurting your ears there's only one time when phone music is acceptable and that's when you're having a down day and you call the call and oats hotline where you can hear hollow notes <laughs> songs on the phone and no i am not making this up right now if you don't believe me you can call 719-26-OATS O-A-T-E-S. It is a real number here in the United States that you can call and it takes you to the Hall Notes hotline where you can pick one of four Hall Notes songs that they'll play to you over the phone. No BS. It's real. And that's the only time it's acceptable. And my Google Assistant better not stop me from listening to the Hall Notes hotline. No, no, no. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, I do <laughs> want to say that I hope they do work something out where you can essentially get it to stop uh, notifying you based off of a phrase. Because they do like these call centers when you're on hold, they seem to repeat the same thing. We're having higher than usual call volume. Thank you for your patience or whatever. And it would be nice if you could have it so it would recognize that and you can say ignore. So then it just every time it hears that, because I'm assuming if there's going to be a voice coming through saying that it's going to translate it on your screen or whatever, hopefully you can go in and say ignore this or something like that so that you don't get a notification every freaking time that comes on. That's probably why they said this is in a very early stage. The software is rather young, for lack of a better term right now, because they have to account for that kind of situation. It's probably really easy for them to deal with, oh, here's a bunch of dumb music, and it's, oh, there's a voice, and that's when it triggers back. It's them being smart enough to realize, oh, that's a computerized voice that's really not telling you anything of consequence. This is when you need to ignore that and keep staying on hold. I, I think part of what they could be doing, though, is audio fingerprinting. Which is huge and used by everything these days. If you have a smart device that listens to your voice or, or you have anything that listens to music, it does audio fingerprinting. So like with, with your Amazon Echo or any other smart device, when you're having it listen for keywords and stuff, or like there's a commercial on TV for an Amazon Echo device, and that's all audio fingerprinting. It knows all the commercials so that when you're when you have your speaker on and you're watching a commercial, it doesn't trigger your Amazon Echo. That's called audio fingerprinting. And the same is true when you're actually listening to music and you're using something like Shazam 
to figure out what you're listening to. It's all audio fingerprinting. And so they can take a fingerprint of any piece of audio, feed that into their system, and now they have that as an audio fingerprint. And if there's nothing that matches that audio fingerprint, perhaps it just assumes, well, that's a real person talking, and it switches back over. Yeah, that could be that could be uh, the way they handle it as well. Uh, I think, like Chris said, it's so early on, it'll have to be a while to see when or the method that they use for this. But I think that that's a very valid way that they could definitely do it. Uh, good theory. At the very least, it's fascinating, and it's something I think a lot of people would use, and that's why it's cool to share it. For those of you who didn't know this, we do stream the show live to geeks.live on Mondays at 8.45 p.m. Eastern time. We've been streaming there for many, many years now. It used to be Tuesdays, but it's been Mondays for a very long time at that time. And we're going to be doing a thing. For those of you who come by live, you can go ahead and participate in our little poll that we have going throughout the show. And so occasionally we'll go ahead and poll the live audience and see what they think about things. And on this, I asked the question, would you use an assistant that handles the call while you're on hold? And we had uh, a split right down the middle. It was actually bouncing all over the place for a while there. Really? We had 33% say yes, 33% no, 33% say I doubt this will work properly. So <laughs> it was going <laughs> all fair. over the place. And um, that is something that I was surprised because I thought everybody would be like, yes, I hate hold music. But apparently some people don't trust the Internet. I don't trust the internet. Moving on to the next story here. This one's a little bit of a, a story. He really is a story. And this is one that uh, I'm going to have to back up here to last week. It's something we probably would have talked about if we had streamed last week. And it all has to do with Apple and Google. So back on August 29th, there was a report that came out of the Google security. We've talked about them before, the department that focuses on trying to make sure Things are safer on the internet, and they've even done reports on their own products and whatnot. Well, they revealed that there was a collection of websites that were hacked to deliver malware onto iPhones with iOS vulnerabilities. And apparently, some of these went undiscovered for years. That's what they came across. The hacks ended up installing zero-interaction malware into various sites that then received many, confirmed to receive many visitors each week. And without clicking or scrolling at all, this malware was able to infect the iPhones. Google ended up demonstrating that the implant could steal private data like iMessages, photos, and GPS location in real time. It had access to other user data such as keychains and passwords as well as database files such as plain text messages that were sent and received. And the malware, the really kind of scary part, is that the malware could actually be wiped as soon as the iPhone was rebooted. So reboot, no trace of that malware left. So this was the Google report that came out. Well, then September 6 comes around, and Apple responds, and they posted on Apple.com the following. Last week, Google published a blog about vulnerabilities that Apple fixed for iOS users in February. We've heard from customers who were concerned by some of the claims, and we want to make sure all of our customers have the facts. First, the sophisticated attack was narrowly focused, not a broad-based exploit of the iPhones en masse as described. The attack affected fewer than a dozen websites that focused on cont-related 
to content related to the UE, UIGHUR community. I don't know how to say that. Regardless of the scale of the attack, we take the safety and security of all our users extremely serious. Google's post issued six months after iOS patches were released creates the false impression of mass exploitation to monitor the private activities of entire populations in real time, stoking fear among all iPhone users that their devices had been compromised. This was never the case. Secondly, all evidence indicates that these website attacks were only operational for a brief period, roughly two months, not two years, as Google implies. We fixed the vulnerabilities in question in February, working extremely quickly to resolve the issue just 10 days after we learned about it. When Google approached us, we were already in the process of fixing the exploited bugs. End quote from the website, which there'll be a link over at gunnageek.com slash uh, or gunnageek.com if you want to go ahead and see this. So that was sort of the back and forth that happened between Google and Apple. Now, I've read through the various information and I'll turn it over to you guys in a minute to get your opinion. But in my, my opinion, I think there's a little bit of middle ground to be found between the two of these. But one of the biggest things that I think needs to really come of this for Apple users is to realize that iPhones are not foolproof safe because we see so many people go, iPhones are safe. You can't do it. The app store is great. It's all secure. And yes, we have seen situations in the past where certain apps were compromised in the app store. But this didn't involve this, the App Store. This involved the browsers on the iPhones going to a website, something that could easily happen pretty basically. You know, you're going to a website. It's not like you're actually going and downloading an app and it was potentially compromised. And I think that if there was the size of the scope of this embellished a little bit, if it does end up bringing some more eyes to the fact that iPhones are not 100% safe all the time, it's not necessarily a bad thing, in my opinion. And one thing to keep in mind is just because you use a different browser on your iPhone, it doesn't mean you're safe because all iPhone browsers are basically Safari with a wrapper on it. You could be using Chrome on your iPhone. It's not actually Chrome. It's Safari with Chrome stuff over top of it because Amazon, not Amazon, uh, Apple doesn't allow you to put your own browser on there. Yeah, and I know for a while there, we were seeing a lot of people you and me, Chris, we switched to Android about the same time. And we had a lot of people on the iOS go, oh, it's not safe. It's not safe. It's not safe. You got to stay with iPhone. So let, let's just, you know, drop the facade here. How do you feel about this? Be real. Be real. How do you feel about this, Chris? The, the safe <sighs> argument is something that Apple has clung to for years. Remember, one of the big deciding points why people should buy Mac, Mac computers for a long time was, oh, it's so much safer for malware and viruses and stuff like that. And it, it was the misconception, for lack of a better term. They had herd immunity is the best way to put it. You know how you have people that can't get vaccinated because of legitimate health problems and most other people are vaccinated. So it kind of keeps them from getting measles or some of those other things. So what you had going on here is everyone was going after the Windows machines because there wasn't the Apple market share. And then it was, oh, Apple's market share is ticking up. Now it's worth it for us to put malware out there to try and infect machines. So the whole safety thing was great. But as their numbers go up, they're going to get attacked more. And go and look at the number of iOS devices out there. Makes sense that someone's going to want to try and find some kind of entry vector to put malware on iOS devices. It doesn't shock me. Do I think anyone's in the wrong here? 
no, Google legitimately put an issue that was out there. Apple came out and said, we patched it. They're squabbling about how long it was an issue. I To Joe, consumer user, I don't think it matters how long it was an issue. The important thing is it was an issue. Google discovered it. Apple fixed it, and the problem has been resolved. But you need to be vigilant about what you're doing online. That's what it comes down to. Suncast, you're the resident iPhone user here right now. Mm-hmm. Does it make you a little more worried? No, not at all. No. I, I, I think everything has its vulnerabilities. Uh, and it all depends on how you use your phone. Like, I'm not going to shady websites, so I'm not worried about anything like that. That's That's really what it comes down to. I think Google... And Apple have no blood loss between them. And I think Google was trying to stir the pot a little bit here. Um, like Apple said, they fixed it relatively quickly, 10 days. I mean, it wasn't like the, the vulnerability sat out there for months and months and months after it was discovered. Yeah, the thing that I, I take issue with on both sides of this here is that I will agree that I think that there's a l- little bit of an implication that it was bigger than it actually was on Google's part. But I think that with Apple's article here, the biggest issue that I have is the fact that they're trying to play it like they're doing something, I don't know, I'll I'll use their term revolutionary by how fast they responded or things like this. When the Google, I forget what the, the team is, the Google security process goes always like this. They discover it, they report it to the company, they have a hold period where they keep that data private, giving the company a predetermined amount of time to fix it. They're very upfront with what that period is. And as soon as that ends up being over, it's out with the public. That is their standard process. And there was nothing different in this part. And I feel like Apple's trying to play it a little bit like, oh, look at us. We just acted on this so fast. It was our process. Like, you know, that's sort of the tone in there. So I think there was a lot of embellishment on both sides. Yes. (laughs) Look, we followed modern security practices. Go us. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's all marketing BS at this point. It's like, it was fixed. It's done. Who cared? Move on. So from just a tech geek nerd issue, I would love to see Google's research. And it's probably out there in the vulnerability about how they say it was a two year long issue compared to what Apple has that says it's only a two month long issue because I'm not trying to take a side here. But if it comes to Trolling around the internet and finding how long content's been out there, I tend to look at Google first for that information than Apple. I think they might have a bigger picture view of what's going on. I'm not sure, but for them to differ so much in how long the exploit was out there, that's more of what has me scratching my head. Do I think it was two years? Maybe not. Do I think it was only two months? It was probably longer than that because these things are out there before people find them. And then it's probably tougher to go back and find out how long it's been. Don't ask me though. I'm not in internet security expert, anything like that. I'm just a common user (laughs) who uses the tools that are provided to me and occasional virus and malware tools on my computer to protect myself. Yeah, and I I think your guess is is fairly accurate there because of the fact that we actually had the guineageek.com site somewhat compromised by someone who mirrored it and things like that. And um, obviously they had... I'm sorry about that. Yeah, it was was Suncast, but... Um, we what, accept your apology. <laughs> no, but seriously, we did. And they obviously had something nefarious that they were doing with that, where they set up a fake Gunna Geek site and whatnot. And really, it was only good for a few months. And th- it was basically set up. And then they didn't care when I put in controls in place to get rid of them. And then after a year, it actually faded away. So it wasn't like a long play. It was obviously something instant they were looking for. And this could be one of the cases there where 
there could have been all of these sites that were out before that were compromised that went up and went down and we would have had no idea. So I think that your, your guess, your educated guess is educated. Moving on to the next news point here. This is really cool. And I'm so glad you're bringing this to the show this week, Suncast. Yeah, this is really cool. Um, I'm not the biggest fan of 3D printing, but I know you guys are. Um, and 3D printing is really cool. I just have never really gotten into it. It's just one of those things that I don't have the money to invest in a 3D printer and all that stuff. I, but I know you guys are big fans of 3D printing, and especially your uh, brother who 3D printed your little mic flag there, which is pretty cool. It's true. Uh, so this is a really cool, interesting story. So the Chicago-based biotech company BioLife 4D announced this week that it has successfully 3D printed, 3D bioprinted, excuse me, a mini human heart. The tiny heart has the same structure as a full-sized heart, and the company says that it's an important milestone in the push to create an artificial heart viable for transplant. Now, the heart was printed with patient-derived cardiac muscle cells, or cardiomyocytes, and bioink made from extracellular matrix compounds that replicate the properties of the mammalian heart. BioLife 4D first bioprinted human cardiac tissues back in June of 2018. And earlier this year, the company bioprinted individual heart components, including valves, ventricles, and blood vessels. Its process involves reprogramming a patient's white blood cells into induced pluripotent stem cells, or IPS cells, which can differentiate into different types of cells including cardiac cells. Now, eventually, the company hopes to bioprint a full-size functioning human heart. Theoretically, bioprinting hearts could reduce or eliminate the need for donor organs. And of course, BioLife 4D isn't the only company looking at 3D print organs, but this is the first one that somebody has actually made an entire 3D printed human heart, which is just fascinating in the fact that they can actually do this. It's fascinating. That's honestly what it is. The ability to look into 3D printers to supplement health and technology like that, it's awesome. I mean, you've heard about feet folks that have heart troubles and they get like pig valves and stuff put in their hearts to work in mm -hmm. the interim. Imagine if, and that has a limited lifespan of, I want to say like 15 years potentially before it would have to be replaced again. Imagine if you could do something that's 3D printed that you could double that lifespan on that is easier to implant. You have less worry for rejection and stuff like that. It's absolutely fascinating. And I love seeing how technology can potentially come into play when it comes to helping to save existing organs, supplement existing organ tissue, stuff like that. I think it's great. And I think there's a lot of potential uses for people that have heart troubles and things like that. The problem is FDA testing and approval and things like that. This is probably a slow process, but it's totally worth it if they can pull it off. If this works and it's viable, it's an amazing new tool to add to doctor's toolboxes. I agree. I think this is so, so unbelievably cool. And I think because you think about it, right? Like there's obviously a lot of history with successful heart transplants and other transplants, right? Like, you know, there, there's, right. a, there's a lot of success stories there with something like the heart and owner organs and whatnot, which is incredible when you think on, on the concept of that. But the thing is, how do you get those where we have shortages and it's a whole yeah. bigger level do you do opt-in? Do you do opt-out? There's all other debates. You know, there's all sorts of things that evolve or revolve around this. 
And if that is taken out of the equation and you've got the ability to print it, how much easier is that because you just go and you print it or maybe it takes it to the next step where it's some form of like mass produced or something like that. So I think that it's really, really neat to see this. Um, and I think there's two things that we should kind of consider about this. Number one is you're right. There's all sorts of regulations. And this is going to be a very, very hard thing. If we ever get to the point where something like this might be viable, how do you get that approval? I think you're going to very quickly, if that's the case, and there is a successful model, I think what you're going to start off by seeing is you're going to see a black market. I think that that's going to be the obvious way that the success stories are going to start out is someone who's like, I got nothing. I'm going to die anyways. Give it a go. Right. And you see something like that happen. I think the second thing to think about as well, though, is if we have success with something like this, and it's a big F, if we have success like this, what other organs come? And at what point do you end up extending the age of people almost indefinitely, right? Because if you're able to 3D print these sort of things like that, right now with the organ donor process, generally somebody who is very aging and and ailing will not generally see a donor provided to them, right? They'll never get right. high enough on that list, which continues the natural life cycle. Well, natural air quotes, right? Because you could other arguments to be had there. Don't want to get into that on this show. But that essentially keeps it kind of that way. And once we're into all of these mechanical things that are actually to do with core, core mechanisms of living, how long do you go on? The whole question. So it's interesting in that regard where I think this is interesting because you're talking about a heart valve and things like that. It's mostly mechanical. It doesn't really have the job of like trying to process and filter things out of blood. It's got a job. It's open and shut. I think that's a little easier. If we start talking about, I want to 3D print and replace someone's kidneys. I think that's a whole different kind of thing way down the road. And while I think that would be cool to see, it's infinitely more complex because the kidneys do more than just open and close like a heart valve does. They process and filter blood and things like that. And we do know that one of the problems we have here, at least in the United States, is there's a lot of people on kidney dialysis. And imagine mm -hmm. if you could 3D print a kidney and that could work for someone, that would be phenomenal. Same concept they had before of trying to clone organs and things like that. There's a lot of interesting theories out there, but what can and can't be done. But 3D printing mechanical replacements for the body, that makes sense. You could potentially 3D print replacement joints or something. People get hip replacements, knee replacements, stuff like that. And those are generally heavier duty metal. If you could 3D print them something a bit more lightweight that is customized to exactly what they need, that's super interesting. There's a lot of different potential here. It's just, it's a matter of research and getting things signed off on. And that's a slow process and deservedly so, because the last thing you want to do is implant someone with a 3D heart valve and then find out, oh, these things, we screwed something up and it's going to dissolve in six and a half years where we could have put a pig heart in your chest and you could have gotten 10 or 15 mm -hmm. years. So now we get to crack you open and the older you get, the more that happens, the harder that is to do. So lots of research coming, lots of testing, which is going to encompass animal testing, patient trials at some point, I would wager, just creating fake hearts and fake blood flow to see how long these valves will last. Yeah. It's incredibly interesting from an engineering and a science tech uh, standpoint but it's also incredibly scary right now because there's so much that needs to be done and so much that could go wrong. And you have to, I don't want to say you have to worry, but it, it's scary to think there might be unethical scientists out there that might start putting these in people early. That's 
me stoking fires that probably don't need to be stoked, but we've seen things out there with certain doctors in other countries doing genetic manipulation now that has been deemed unethical by their peers. They did it anyways in some countries and people went, wait, what, what did you just do? That's completely unethical. They're like, oh, the kid's fine. Yeah, you, you don't want to do that. Yeah. Well, I have to say that um, while this is a very interesting thing and a very in, uh, fun concept in a lot of ways to think about, this is not actually the first major human 3D printed organ idea because I actually have had one of my important organs replaced and I can't show it on the show. So there you go. I've had one of those replaced by 3D. Ew. How's your kneecap doing now? <laughs> uh, well, you know what? Needless to say, I think 3D printing is really cool. And uh, the, what you can do with it from a technological standpoint, is just absolutely fascinating. I think I watched this one video where they were uh, 3D printing diddle, different metal structures and different patterns to see how the patterns affected the strength of the material. There's incredible uses. There's even been people that have been 3D printing casts for broken limbs because they're mm -hmm. so much lighter weight and mm -hmm. you've actually got like airflow and stuff on the limbs. So versus getting a plaster cast you've got on your arm for six to eight weeks where your arm stinks because you can't wash it properly and you've got that itch in the center of your forearm you can't get to. These are like webbed casts that go over there. So there's like holes all over and you could, you know, scratch your arm. You could take it off temporarily if you needed to for some reason. It's fascinating the, the uses we're finding for 3D printing for both health purposes and just general, this is a cool thing I want to print, like Steven's mic flag. That, that, that's what's so neat is there's innocuous cool things and then there's potentially life-saving and life-altering things that can be done. Yeah, and I think that's that's where it's very fascinating is, is when, you, when you apply that 3D printing to like the medical field or the construction field where you're building a structure and you're trying to build it in a way that's more structurally sound but lighter weight with with a similar or stronger material just based on the way that you've 3d printed it well and i think the thing with 3d printing is to remember is 3d printing is not just one material like my mic flag is essentially plastic that my brother printed it plastic but you chris shared the story on here a few weeks back about adam savage who did 3d printing of titanium right yes so, that was incredibly expensive, but yes. But 3D printing plastic was way more expensive when it first came out than it is now. Um, so you never know. You never know where this is going to lead. And soon enough, thank God, Suncast is going to be able to 3D print him some of those critical supplies that he needs on the moon base. I am rolling a poll right now on Geeks.Live about this, and the responses are in. I asked, how long do you think it'll be until something as critical to life as a 3D printed heart is actually used? We had nobody say zero to five years. We had 25% of the people say six to 10 years. We had 50% say 11 to 20 years. No one said 20 plus and 25% said I'll be dead. Hopefully the 3D heart wouldn't have prevented that. <laughs> So lots of people uh, thinking that we're still still a little bit away. We're still, you know, uh, 15, 20 year mark, is, I think, is what the Geeks.Live consensus is. And lastly, before we move on to Chris's Taps That App, I was going to say Chris's geeky stuff, but that's my segment. Chris, Chris Taps I'm That App. I'm taking it. It's mine now. <laughs> we had a little bit of... Uh, 
news come out this past you know, a few weeks ago uh, now because we didn't talk about it on 200, but I wanted to mention it here. And it's the fact that it's rumored to be the Google Home Mini line is maybe getting refreshed. We speculated that a while ago and we all hemmed and hawed because there was no real rumors about it. And we were wondering, and now it's looking like the rumor mill is cooking up that there is going to be a refresh coming out soon enough on that line. And I didn't want to take too much time about it, but I did want to mention it because of the fact that we have talked about it on here before. Chris is very quickly abandoning all of his Amazon devices for Google. And I wanted him to have an opportunity to say, Stephen, you were right. Steven, I don't care about this news. <laughs> <laughs> uh, truthfully, the reason I did want to mention it right now is because um, I, I've said it from the beginning. I, I would rather be in the Google infrastructure as far as the smart devices I'm sorry. go. I would. I would. I use a Google smartphone. I use Google in a lot of other ways, and I would rather than Amazon. But it's just, for me, they haven't been evolving and as rapidly as Amazon. And so I've stuck with Amazon, and uh, I hope that this is the next pump forward that we need with Google for this smart home line because I want to see it. I want to see more stuff come out of Google. Be okay if Google ended up being the winner in this, and I'd be okay to sell all my Amazon stuff and go over to Google because Google is life. Let's go ahead and move on to Chris. Tap that app. Tap away, Chris. While you may know Chris loves phones, tablets, and other gadgets, did you know he's also a master tap dancer? It's time for him to combine the two passions in a segment he calls Chris Taps That App. That's right. We're back this week to tap multiple apps because it's a special time of year again, guys. It is the NFL National Football League has started up here again in the United States. You guys probably know I love football. I watch a lot of football. I used to play fantasy football a lot. I was trying not to play this year because I took it a little too seriously last year. Won one league, took second place in another league. <clears throat> Excuse me. But every time you try and quit, you get pulled right back in. And I got yanked back in on a league because some friends were putting one together and they needed some teams. And I came out of my self-imposed retirement. I'm back playing fantasy football here in the United States. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's an addiction. It's an addiction. <laughs> but it's better than going to the casino. And it's better than drinking $5 bottles of wine. Just saying. Just saying. But what I did want to talk about is not necessarily one app, but some of the apps I like to use and to look at when it comes to playing the game, researching the game, and whining and complaining about the game. So we're going to touch on some apps I've talked about, others I haven't. It's going to be a cavalcade of applications for fantasy football purposes. So really, if you're going to play, the first thing you need to do, you need to decide where you're going to play and then download the fantasy sports app for that site. So really, for most folks, there's two big players a lot of casual fans look at. It's ESPN.com and Yahoo.com. Yes, it's Yahoo. They have a very robust fantasy sports aspect to Yahoo. I've played baseball, football, basketball, pick them things like that there. I prefer the ESPN site, but a lot of people still play on Yahoo. I do as well. For my seasonal stuff, if you're talking daily fantasy sports, there's a lot of sites out there where you can pay and try and gamble to make money, such as DraftKings and things like that. I don't play daily fantasy sports because it makes my head hurt 
and I don't want to lose money. I play seasonal fantasy football with my friends where the winner gets bragging rights and the loser gets mocked. That's about the extent of what happens because I I don't want to lose money playing this sport. So really, the first thing you got to do, like I mentioned, figure out what platform you're playing on, then get all your friends there. I've played both ESPN and Yahoo in recent years. I've probably played other sites in the past when I played in high school and college with buddies of mine. But really at this point, nine times out of 10, it's ESPN or Yahoo we're playing with. That's the simplest thing you got to figure out. Those apps, you can get them on iOS. You can get them on Android. You can access them via websites. Pretty much any device that can access the internet aside from like uh, home assistants like uh, Amazon Voice Services and Google Assistant, they'll get you there. What about my Windows Phone 7? Can I get it on my Windows Phone 7? You could back in the day. I don't think you can anymore. But no joke, that was one of the things when Windows Phone 7 was out. Well, I believe Yahoo put an app out for it. And like, hey, we're, we support Windows Phone. And it, it was a big deal to a lot of folks because there are people who take this game very seriously. There are people that have 10, 12 fantasy teams playing leagues where it's like a $20 buy-in and people try and win money. I don't do that. If that's your jam, that's great for you. I play for fun. This So this is... Chris's tips for how to use different internet tools for fantasy football when you're playing for fun and or minimal bragging rights. Let's put it that way. So <laughs> once you've figured out where you're going to play, you've got a lot of decisions you got to make. You got to figure out who you're going to draft. You've got to once you get a draft, you've got to figure out who you're going to start, who you're going to sit. You got to figure out whether you want to make trades with people to further enrich your team, or if you're a really smart fantasy football player, you need to watch and see what happens and work the waiver wire because injuries inevitably happen and you need to be smart and pick up the right players to fill those holes. So what are some tools to go and use out there to help you? Well, the simplest thing is ESPN and Yahoo. They both make a ton of money by writing their own fantasy content and putting ads on it. So Matthew Barry, for instance, works for ESPN.com. He's been on the, he guest starred on the league where they made a big deal of things. He's on sports center all the time. Yahoo's hired fantasy writers to give start, sit tips and things like that. They're great starting points. But if you're playing on ESPN and your friends are playing on ESPN too, you might not want to take all your advice directly from the ESPN websites because they're reading the same content. The nice thing is these uh, strategy articles and suggestion articles, they all get folded into the respective apps. So like if I go on the Yahoo Fantasy Sports app right now, I can get projections and click on things and read articles for strategy. Same with ESPN. So That's your basic starting point. If you want to get a little crazier, do your own research on different sports sites like SI.com or ESPN or uh, Sporting News, stuff like that. I like to use The Athletic. It's a website that's out there that is no ads because everyone pays, I think it's 50 bucks a year for access to their content. And it's it's similar to the same kind of concept you see with The Washington Post, New York Times. It's you pay for journalists to provide you good journalism. They give you no ads. And the cool thing is the folks on The Athletic, they have regular message boards and comment periods. They respond to comments in the articles. They do Q&A things. So if you're a fantasy sports player and you're subscribed to The Athletic, you can go on their website or their app and you can ask questions during their Q&As for fantasy sports. And they get blasted with a bunch of questions, but they're pretty good about trying to answer the vast majority of those questions. So you go in there, ask your question, get a response back and say, hey, Thanks for your help. That's a really powerful tool, and it's really interesting to play with. If you want to get even crazier, there's a bunch of websites out there that build their business around giving you fantasy sports advice. 
And they do have a free tier of things. They also have a paid tier. So there's sites like the Fantasy Alarm. There's sites like Fantasy Pros. I use Fantasy Pros, and they have wizards they can use to import your roster from your Yahoo team or your ESPN team. And then you can use their website to basically look at their projected rankings, get suggestions for start and sit recommendations, get waiver wire suggestions. Most of those things are free. You can also get customized news based off your roster. And they also have apps for iOS and Android. So I downloaded the My Lineup tool for Fantasy Pros because that's the one that I use, imported my roster, and it gives me news notifications if one of the players on my fantasy team gets injured or if one of the players is looking doubtful for the upcoming week to practice so that I can make strategy to figure out what to do. They also aggregate a bunch of news on their website, including columns and suggestions and Q&A pieces on what should I do. A lot of these things are on the free tier, but if you really want additional help or you want to dominate your fantasy league, you can pay on most of these sites to get a higher level tier of support where they have automated tools that help you analyze trades between teams, or they have Q&A periods where you are guaranteed to get answers because you're paying for their service. Now, some of these things can be as low as $2.99 a month. Some of them can be up to $19.99 a month. I don't pay these sites. There's a lot of potential with those sites for some folks, but like I said, I'm playing just for fun and I don't deal with daily fantasy sports. I'm dealing with seasonal stuff. So I'm not as worried about having to nail every decision I make. Uh, One last thing for another place to get suggestions and research from. There's actually an app for this, but I subscribe to SiriusXM digitally for like $2.99 a month. And there is a fantasy sports radio channel. Yes, there is a channel just for fantasy sports advice. And almost every episode they air is on demand with no commercials. So you could just go and binge listen to a bunch of different fantasy advice and they try and title each section of their show and you can skip ahead to with the time codes associated with that. So you could open up a show and say, oh, at 15 minutes, they're talking about Aaron Rodgers and the Packers this weekend. I need to know who to start there. You can skip straight to that section and listen. That's available in an app, in a web browser. There's all sorts of places to go and do your research. And if you're a good fantasy sports player, you're doing a ton of research. That's honestly the fun is trying to cope with your strategy and feel like you're outsmarting people until you outsmart yourself and dump someone on your roster that you needed. And then the person ahead of them is now injured and they're going to be starting this week and you don't know if you're going to get them. It's a it's a problem. I screwed up this week, guys. I'm rusty. Rust. Uh, I'm glad you can admit that on here, though. We're here to help you through <sighs> that, Chris. Yes, I know, Stephen, you and your vast knowledge of the New England Patriots will be here to help me. I actually do have a New England Patriot on my team. I know Antonio Brown. I know you mentioned it. You mentioned it. You told me I, I was, I was, I was a little proud of you. A little proud of you. Well, he wasn't a Patriot when I drafted. Him. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was gonna say that I would have bet a lot of money on that. <laughs> yeah. So we talked about everything you need to do going up to game day. Let's talk about game day. This is when the crazy things happen. When the games are being played. When you're having to make snap decisions two minutes before kickoff. What are some of the tools you're gonna need? Your Twitter app of choice. It's huge for keeping an idea of what's going on. If you follow some of the fantasy sports experts and stuff that are out there, they're generally answering questions for about four hours before kickoff. They're tweeting out links to suggestions and advice pieces they've done. They can be incredibly helpful to help you back up what your research says. It's also really helpful on Twitter just to trash talk everyone you're playing with, because if they're on Twitter, you can trash talk back and forth as the game's going on. And more importantly, If you can't be in the house to watch sports, you can watch your Twitter feed and get an idea of what's going on. Another tool you're going to want on game day, the fantasy football app of your your choosing, meaning if you're an ESPN, the ESPN app, or Yahoo, Yahoo app. Why do you want them? Number one, 
you can talk smack to whoever you're playing that week in the league or to the league in general. And there's just something to be said about a little crap talking. It's kind of fun. But more importantly, they give live score updates that are pretty much within 30 seconds of when it actually happens in the games. Meaning you can pull up my game this week against the, uh, oh, what was the team called? I forgot. I can't remember the team I was playing, but it was a funny name. (laughs) (laughs) It all blurs together and I forgot to write it down. But I was playing them this week and I can pull up a side-by-side comparison. My quarterback compared to their quarterback. My running backs compared to their running backs with live scores and projected scores and the current scores of the games they're playing in. So you can see just how games are shaping up. It's also another really easy way to keep on track of what is going on in the game. And then finally, you need a way to potentially watch the football. If you got cable, that's great. Pull up your local channels, watch it on there. You can pull up NFL Red Zone. But if you're like me and you don't have cable anymore, you cut the cord, you got a few different ways to watch. My current setup right now, like I said, I use YouTube TV on here. I have set it up to literally record every single NFL game that airs because I have an unlimited DVR. So why wouldn't I do that? What is cool with that one is I can set up reminders for certain teams. So it sends a notification to my device and says, here, you might want to watch that. But from a fantasy sports perspective or just someone who enjoys the sport, it's really cool because with a uh, YouTube TV, if you access it via the browser or via at least the iPad app, I've seen it, they have like a key features tool for any game you record where it brings up a sidebar, all of like the changes of possession, all of the scores, and you tap on that in the sidebar and it fast forwards the video to that exact same point where it happens. So you can watch it for yourself. So you could theoretically condense a football game that's three and a half hours long down to like 10 minutes if you just went to all the key plays. <laughs> it's it's a pretty cool feature. I've really enjoyed it a lot. I've only played with it a little bit in college football and I think one pro game. Now, my real problem is the biggest problem I've had since I cut cable, I don't care about missing Comedy Central. I don't care about missing the History Channel, things like that. What I care about is on YouTube TV, I cannot get NFL Red Zone. And I need my NFL Red Zone. For those that aren't aware of what NFL Red Zone is, it is a channel run by the NFL, hosted by a man named Scott Hansen. And for seven and a half hours, he sits and stands behind a desk and they whip around to every game as it is going on. Anytime there is a score, they cut to that game. He introduces the game. They show the score. They talk about what happened with it. They cut back and forth between games, whichever games are the most interesting. And this man sits and stands behind that desk for seven hours with no bathroom breaks, no coffee breaks, nothing like that. It is, an inc- if you love NFL football, if you love football, it is one hell of a channel to watch because you get to see every game and the highlights of every game as it's going on. And from a fantasy sports perspective, <laughs> you want to know anytime someone scores a point, anytime there's a big passing play, anytime there's a turnover, anytime there's field goals, you want to know because that potentially impacts your fantasy football team. So I went and picked up the free trial of Sling TV. They're doing the first two weeks of NFL Red Zone free with it. And then I may supplement my YouTube TV for three months with Sling TV just for NFL Red Zone. (laughs) Yes, I'm going to be paying $30 a month just for one channel that I watch seven hours every Sunday. But I'm totally on board with it because it's cheaper than going to a sports bar and and eating and drinking all afternoon. Okay, but hold on. Before you continue here, how how much are you saving with YouTube TV versus your previous options? Oh, a boatload. Yes. So this is still cheaper than what I had with Comcast. So having the two together is still cheaper. So just run them both. That and that's what I'm doing right okay. now. The plan okay. is my wife was on board with it too because she loves the Red Zone channel. Is that we're going to run them both through Week 17 of the NFL because then the Red Zone stops after that, 
And the nice thing about all these streaming services is it's really easy just to turn it off when it's all said and done and you're good to go then. So those are Chris's tips for getting your fantasy football on this year. Some of the apps you'll need, some of the logic you'll need. I'm not giving you any of my roster picks or any of my dark horse candidates for anything because I don't know if anyone from my league is listening and uh, waiver wire pickups are tomorrow morning and I can't let anyone have a certain player who will remain nameless that I really need. Uh, you're doing you- Yahoo? Are you doing Yahoo? I'm doing Yahoo this okay. year. Okay, so there's like a 60-70% chance it'll be leaked anyways. So that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's why I don't keep my fantasy football notes in the Yahoo app. I keep them in other No, I kid. <laughs> uh, so let's just do a little catch up here. For the audio listener, uh, Suncast is reading a menu from Rita's Cool Catering uh, available at Delicious. Re- Rita's Cool Catering ne- store near you. Uh, I believe that's his indication that he checked out of this what? segment. Exactly. Yeah, there you go. Uh, over on Geeks. I'm sorry. I'm, lo- I'm, lo- I'm looking at Italian ice flavors. Ooh, <laughs> I don't want ice. Over on Geeks.Live, we ran a little bit of polls. Uh, we had 50% of people say that they did use sports apps and 50% said no, they did not. We also had another one, which was, do you play fantasy football? And we had 25% say yes, 50% say no, and 25% say Chris is my only fantasy. I'm flattered. <laughs> Thank you. But but I'm married, everyone. So I will have to just remain your fantasy. We can't act on it. That's okay. That's okay. I can work with that. Uh, <laughs> now I know who voted that way. <laughs> <laughs> and we also had 67% of the respondents say that they did watch American football and 33% say no. So there you go. Uh, if you are into fantasy football, let us know what sort of tech tools, what kind of geek tools do you have to keep you going? Uh, I know there's actually quite a few gonna geekers that are into fantasy football or come and go in fantasy football. So thank you for taking the time to share that, Chris Farrell. Do appreciate it. I, I, I have no real intention or desire to get into it, but I say that mostly because I feel like if I actually took the time to try to get into it, I would be like all into it and it would take way too much of my time. (laughs) That's the problem. That's why I was not originally going to play again this year, but I got an offer I couldn't refuse to play with some friends of mine where it was supposed to be just a friendly game with some trash talk back and forth. And and I'm okay with that versus last season, one of my leagues was just some friends of mine. The other was a bunch of other people that worked with this one fantasy football advice group on Twitter. And he's like, hey, let's put a league together. And it was super competitive, and I was really proud of myself that I took second place in that league that year because uh, I'm going to pat myself on the back a little bit here. I made some incredible waiver wire pickups that if they hadn't panned out, I'd have been hosed on, and it just worked out well for me that year. I just ran into a buzzsaw in the finals, and oh well, what can you do? Question for you also, um, while we were talking streaming service for, services for Red Zone, is, um, and I know everybody says it a thousand different ways, but is uh, Red Zone available on the zone down there? Or is it more? It is not available on the zone. They have an MLB, a Major League Baseball version of Red Zone. So if you want to watch NFL Red Zone and you're not subscribed to cable or satellite, it's only available on three services Sling TV, PlayStation View, and Fubo TV. And in order to get it on Fubo or PlayStation View, it's about $55 a month. Sling TV, I think, is $30 a month. The trade-off, and not everyone's going to notice it, but it is more noticeable sports, is that Sling TV only offers things in 30 frames per second, whereas the other two services offer sports at 60 frames per second. So it can be a little jarring motion-wise mm. sometimes. Now, 
I only noticed it a few times. And to be honest, NFL Red Zone for me is not something I have to sit and stare at the entire time. Yeah. I'm often on my iPad or playing a game on my Switch and kind of half watching. And when I hear exciting things happen, I then look up. But I imagine if I was watching it for seven and a half straight hours, I would probably notice the fact it's at 30 frames per second. This is a problem that Andrew Zarin has uh, come across quite often in his endeavor to cut the cable and not have any sort of cable. It's just that a lot of these streaming services out there just don't necessarily measure up to that super high quality, high frame rate, high resolution, high bit rate that you would necessarily get if you did have cable. Right. So the problem you run into, like I love YouTube TV, but there are some channels that are only 720p like ESPN. But the reason that is, is if you have cable, you're only getting ESPN at 720p. That's what they're sending it out at. They're not sending out a 4K signal or anything like that. So that's the problem you run into. But they are starting to look into it a little bit. Like if you have the Fox app during the World Cup, they streamed all the Women's World Cup games in 4K on the Fox app. It was gorgeous. They're doing select sports on there in 4K. It's just it's bandwidth limiting in a lot of cases. So don't expect to see it a ton of times. But we are starting to evolve and get better about having higher quality streams out there. It's just it's the exception of the norm right now. You're pretty much getting roughly equivalent to what you have on cable, just maybe a little bit of degradation because of internet compression compared to what you'd have over the cable itself. And in my case, the only times I really notice it is with some really dark scenes where there's a lot of black on screen. I can deal with that to save as much money as I am with YouTube TV compared to Comcast. Yeah. So it's a trade-off. I fully admit it. And I embrace that trade-off for the monetary discount that I'm having. Well, I'm glad to hear you found a couple solutions here for, you know, sort of rounding off that portfolio that you're kind of used to having during this time of year. So that's good to see. It's just a shame that you have to go into some extra services and whatnot. But that's the nice thing, though, about what you talked about a few weeks ago with saving all that money and what you mentioned tonight is you can afford that. You can now you can afford to have an extra service. So during the months where you need it. So thanks for sharing all of this today to do with all the fantasy football. Thanks to all of your knowledge or thanks to you for sharing all of your knowledge. Do greatly appreciate that. And Suncast, thanks for showing us a menu. Greatly appreciate that as well. I've got a Rita's 10 minutes from my house. I might go get some Italian ice. Have you never been there? I have once, I think. Oh, God. Uh, I was was in Nashville for Labor Day weekend. I went two nights in a row because it was so good. Nice. This show is not sponsored by Rita's. I feel like I have to say that. (laughs) I love Rita's, though. I really do. It's pretty good. Well, that's going to go ahead and take us towards the end of the show. Before we wrap up, I'll remind everybody Suncast is available when he's not on here at GFQnetwork.com. We can also actually be found on GFQ Network. Yes, the show is also available over there when I remember to send the post to Suncast, which is uh, <laughs> I have a habit of forgetting that and then flooding him with them. But uh, thank you very much, Suncast, for having us over there as well. I know people have occasionally found us through GFQ Network, so thank you very much. Oh, good. It's working. Uh, <laughs> also, thanks to Andrew for that, because I know it wasn't just Suncast's responsibility. Chris Farrell, do you have anything that you want to plug or promote? Uh, yeah, I'm actually going to shamelessly self-promote this time, but... It's for a good cause. I do another show called the All Things Good Nerdy Podcast. And this past week, we had uh, comic book writer David Peepos back on again to talk not about Spencer and Locke, but about his new book, Going to the Chapel. And he, we talked to him for about 50 minutes about writing the book, about how 
He's been working with Action Labs to distribute it. And it's actually a really cool book. We got to read issue one ahead of time because he sent us a PDF of it. It is available now, but uh, I want to describe it for you guys just to have an idea and then say, please go check out the interview over at atgnpodcast.com. So going to the chapel, it's like Die Hard meets Wedding Crashers about a bride with cold feet who becomes the ringleader of her own hostage situation when her wedding is taken over by bank robbers. Oh yeah, and these bank robbers are all dressed like Elvis with Elvis masks on. It's crazy. It's fun. It's it's different from Spencer and Locke, but different in a good way because that book is also good. So really, check out the book. And if you want to hear more about from David about how he came up with the book, what he's enjoyed with it, and his work with Action Labs and where he's going to be promoting it in the near future, go check out the latest episode of the All Things Good and Nerdy podcast. Suncast, do you have anything that you would like to plug or promote? Check me out on Twitter, at Suncast. That's S-U-N-K-A-S-T. On that note, for episode 301 of the OfficialGunnaGeek.com show, I'm Stephen John Drew saying I have no Rita's. That's why we're not sponsored by Rita's. They don't want to do business with a Canadian. I'm Suncast, and I'm going to go 3D print a human heart. I'm Chris Farrell, and I don't have a fantasy football problem. Yet. (laughs) Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Shh, not yet. We're only in week one. Bye. Thanks for checking out another episode of the official GunnaGeek.com show. If you like the show, please give us a five-star review in Apple Podcasts or a thumbs up on YouTube. You can always join us for our live recording sessions, which stream Mondays at 8.45 p.m. Eastern at www.geeks.live. And remember, you can find our full back catalog at gunageek.com forward slash show. If you're itching for more geeky content, check out other shows on gunageeknetwork.com. Voice work was by Emily Prokop of the Story Behind podcast. That's it for this episode. We hope to see you back again next week.